Laudator Jesus Christus. Praise be Jesus Christ. This is Matt Gaspers, Managing Editor of Catholic Family News, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Dr. Brian McCall, who is the Editor-in-Chief of CFN. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done a video, so it's good to see you, Brian. I hope you've been doing well. Uh, very well. Good to see you as well, Matt. And of course, we are in the octave of Pentecost. Today, we're coming to you on May 28th, 2021. And we celebrated Pentecost Sunday this past Sunday, uh, May 23rd. So I hope that you all have had a wonderful uh, Pentecost and that you're having a wonderful Pentecost uh, week. Mm. We've got several great stories to go over uh, with you this week. First of all, um, Brian, made a trip to the, the SSPX seminary in, is that in? Virginia. Uh, Virginia, that's right, for his son's ordination to the subdiaconate. So we wish uh, his son a wonderful congratulations on that. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing about his trip and some of the details from the ordination. And also just in the broader context, how the, uh, the experiment of tradition as Archbishop Lefebvre called it <laughs> continues to grow and thrive, yes. even in these times of, of uh, you know, so-called pandemic and all of the craziness going on with COVID. Yes. Maybe even more so because of that, God is using it as a, a means to grow tradition. Uh, we're also going to report on uh, some news about Father James Altman, a priest in Wisconsin who has been very outspoken over the past several months, speaking the truth, uh, and his bishop has apparently asked him to resign as a result of his zealous preaching so we're going to get into the details of that. Also, some major news. Uh, our last two stories are major news from Rome this week. We have reports coming out that Pope Francis has actually spoken with the Italian Bishops Conference concerning concerning the possible end, in some manner, of Samorum Pontificum, uh, Pope Benedict's liberation, you might say, of the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, which was published in 2007. There are reports that there is, quote, imminent reform of that document in the works. And then finally, this synod on synodality that we have reported on before has finally been officially announced by the Vatican, and, and we're now finding out it's going to be a 2021 through October of 2023. And some are speculating that this is basically like Vatican III. So we'll get into all those details shortly. But before we uh, jump into the news, as we always do, we'll start with a brief uh, liturgical segment and spend a few moments pondering the things that are above, as St. Paul says. And since we are in the octave of Pentecost, I think it's appropriate to focus on that. There have been several saints celebrated since our last show on May 14th, but we don't have time to cover all of them, so we'll just focus on the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, I don't know if Brian has anything he wanted to comment. I have a, a little excerpt from uh, Dom Prosper Guéranger's The Liturgical Year, but I wanted to give Brian a chance to say anything he might want to add. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting week liturgically because it, it really shows us the mind of the church about ancient practices. So um, it all because this week also overlaps with the summer ember days and, and yes. it creates kind of a little interest. If you've been to the liturgy this week, an interesting phenomenon because we have ember days, but the priest is vested in red, not purple. And he says the Gloria and the Alleluia, again, things which are typically not associated with ember days. Mm -hmm. And the origin of that is that it, it attests to the antiquity of the ember days. So what happened was the ember days existed, 
And then sometime after, we're still talking the ancient church, but after the Ember Days, the church elevated uh, Pentecost to an octave. So remember, octave mm -hmm. are the most important feasts, Christmas, Easter, to celebrate over eight days. But when the church made these eight days an octave, she didn't just like say, oh, well, to get rid of the Ember Days, she sort of fused them together to preserve both the Ember Days and this, this celebration. So again, mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting uh, show how the church, even though developing organically, does so in a way that respects those ancient traditions of the ember days. And, and so you, you, you see that liturgically, that kind of coming together, whereas the, the Novus Ordo just, well, ember days, get rid of those. And they just completely right. eliminated them. And the but, octaves and everything. And the octaves and everything, yes. So there's no conflict in the, in the new calendar because there's no conflict because Pentecost is one day and there's no, um, no ember days. Right. So this brief excerpt I want to read from uh, the liturgical year I love how Dom Prosper Guéranger shows that Pentecost, which was actually originally a feast in the, the Mosaic law, bring, comes to bring several things to fulfillment in the new law of Christ. So he says, The great day which consummates the work that God had undertaken for the human race has at last shone upon the world. This is his meditation for the Feast of Pentecost itself. The days of Pentecost, as St. Luke says, are accomplished. We have had seven weeks since the Pasch, and now comes the day that opens the mysterious number of 50. As many probably know, Penta means 50. That's It's 50 days, roughly 50 days after the Passover, after Easter. This day is the Sunday already made holy by the creation of the light and by the resurrection of Jesus. It is about to receive its full consecration and bring us the fullness of God. In the old and figurative law, God foreshadowed the glory that was to belong at a future period to the 50th day. Israel had passed the waters of the Red Sea thanks to the protecting power of his paschal lamb. Seven weeks were spent in the desert, which was to lead to the promised land. And the very morrow of those seven weeks was the day whereupon was made the alliance between God and his people. So historically, Pentecost was a day on which the Jewish people would celebrate the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses on Mount Sinai, is what he eventually explains. Um, and he goes on to say, uh, Dom Prosper Guranjay says, but how different are the two Pentecosts? So as far as the giving of the law versus what happened on Pentecost Sunday with the apostles, the descent of the Holy Ghost. The one on the rugged rocks of Arabia amidst thunder and lightning promulgates a law that is written on tablets of stone. The second is in Jerusalem, on which God's anger has not as yet been manifested because it still contains within its walls the first fruits of that new people over whom the spirit of love is to reign. In this second Pentecost, the heavens are not overcast, nor is the roar of thunder heard. The hearts of men are not stricken with fear, as when God spoke on Sinai. Repentance and gratitude are the sentiments now uppermost. A divine fire burns within their souls and will spread throughout the whole world. Our Lord Jesus Christ has and what will I but that it will be kindled. The hour for the fulfillment of this word has come. The spirit of love, the Holy Ghost, the eternal uncreated flame is about to descend from heaven 
and realize the merciful design of our Redeemer. And he goes on for much longer. We don't have time to cover the whole thing, but just, just thought I'd read a brief excerpt. It's, he has such beautiful meditations. It's wonderful spiritual reading if you're ever able to, to, to look at his, uh, the liturgical year. It's very good. Yes, it's, it's excellent preparation for, for attending Mass. Yes. So we'll go to our first story. And as Matt said, we, I apologize for not having a news roundup last week. Although if you haven't seen them, we did release several videos last week. An excellent interview with uh, uh, Matthew Hoffman. Well, there's one with Eric Sammons that was released. So please check those if you haven't seen them. But uh, we didn't have a news roundup because I was traveling last Friday to Virginia to attend uh, this ordination uh, ceremony. And it's an important story uh, because we've been talking a lot about the attempts in the post-conciliar church to destroy the priesthood and destroy the proper distinction between the priest and the lay and the lay state. And Pope Francis has been really pushing that forward. And we've reported on uh, how the orders of the priesthood were suppressed by Paul VI, but then he put in these ministries, an important change of word, of uh, a reader and uh, acolyte. And then now Francis has let women into those. And he's also now created a new ministry recently called Catechist. Right? So it's kind of funny, you tear something down and then you recreate it you know, in a different, different way. And women also will be in his ministry. Now, why is he called the ministries and not ordinations? Because ordination means you are ordained toward the priesthood. Uh, the church for centuries has understood the priesthood is too immense a gift for a man to receive all at once. And so that's why she gradually gives the gift of the priesthood over these seven steps. There's seven steps of ordination. Uh, beginning with the porter lector that we've talked about before. And again, number seven, very significant. It's the number of perfection. Uh, rep six representing the number of man being completed by Christ in the incarnation, making seven. Uh, again, many other important uh, ideas, but that, that seven steps up to the priesthood uh, is, is very important. That seven, as we've talked about, is divided between the minor and the major orders. Uh, the minor orders, porter, lector, acolyte, exorcist, ex exorcist, acolyte, and then subdeacon, deacon, and priest. Again, this is all to preserve that separating away from the lay state, taking each step towards the priesthood. Mm -hmm. um, the subdiaconate uh, is ancient. We know that it is it, it existed from at least the middle of the third century. Again, as many of these things we can't pinpoint because they, there's no sort of this is when it, it happens, but we get written references to it. And we can say, okay, a pope's yeah. referring to it. So we know it at least was around before that. So it was at least before the mid of third century. And then the other important part about this, this step, it is uh, a definitive step on the road to the priesthood. So by mm -hmm. being ordained subdeacon, a man, uh, before that, even if you're ordained an acolyte exorcist, you can leave. You can say, you know what, I don't have a calling and you can return to the world and, and get married. Once the cleric becomes a subdeacon, he is forever bound by the law of celibacy. So he completely renounces the married state. And he's it's the all- lowest, It's the lowest of the major orders, right? Yes, yes, yes. And he also is bound to the divine office for the rest of his life. So even if, again, he may never be ordained a priest, he is bound for the rest of his life. So this is uh, a, a really a fundamental a big deal. Yes. Step. yes. Uh, and 
uh, it also begins moving the cleric towards the priesthood. Uh, the subdeacon uh, traditionally you can do the thing. He reads the epistle at a solemn mass. He holds the paten. He pours the water into the chalice, and he also completes the purification of the sacred vessels. He can wash the sacred linens. So again, he's brought closer uh, in that step towards towards the priesthood. That's why in, in more recent centuries, the subdiaconate was not conferred until shortly before the diaconate. So again, the, the superiors say, okay, we're sure this candidate has a vocation. So then we will let them take this step. And, mm -hmm. and again, because it's, if, if you know that's where they're headed, this is uh, held until again, usually shortly sometime the year before uh, the step to the diaconate. So very, very important because of how it, it uh, preserves and shows the foundation of the priesthood is celibacy and prayer by these two binding obligations now that come upon the subdeacon. Interestingly, in terms of uh, more recent history, uh, this was when Archbishop Lefebvre had one of his tense meetings with Pope Paul VI when he was summoned to a secret tribunal uh, in the Vatican when he wasn't even told it was going to be a tribunal and uh, he was just sort of showed up for a meeting and was under attack. One of the accusations Paul VI threw at him was that you make your seminarians swear an oath against the Pope when they become subdeacon. And this Archbishop says, what are you talking about? We don't against the Pope. Well, actually, what he was referring to is that the Archbishop uh, preserved the custom that the day before they become subdeacons, the candidates uh, make a profession of faith and not the post-Vatican II one, the traditional profession of faith, and they mm -hmm. must swear the oath against modernism, and then they right. swear their, uh, you know, their uh, fidelity to the society that they're joining. Uh, and this is so good. The Archbishop was like, if swearing the oath against modernism is an oath against the Pope, there's something wrong with that conclusion. <laughs> so what does that yeah, mean? I'll Paul say. VI considered himself. I, I, I don't know. I'm modernist. But, uh, and again, that, that still uh, continues that, that pr pr preparation. So an interesting little uh, clip I want to show is a kind of a segue also into the little report on the, what the ceremonies that I'll give of the, the ordination of the subdeacon uh, mm -hmm. is a story that occurred a little while ago, and we just didn't have time to cover it extensively uh, in our prior news roundup. Uh, and this was a speech that uh, the Pope gave recently, and here's what he had to say about certain seminarians. Yes. I'll read these subtitles. At this time, there is the great danger of making errors in the formation and also and in the power of ambition in seminarians. I speak more quickly than he does. <laughs> we have seen frequently seminarians who look good, but who are rigid. A classic Francis term. Yes. And rigidity is not of a good spirit. So, as I said, I traveled to the seminary in uh, uh, Virginia, and I saw a lot of look good-looking, rigid seminarians. <laughs> and by rigid, he means they swear the oath against modernism. Obviously, yes, they are rigid against uh, modernism. So uh, this is what Francis is worried about. This is the crisis in the church that he sees. Yeah. Uh, so again, can you see, I can't remember, do I need to reshare the screen? You can see uh, this next video. 
Yeah, I can yes. see it on my end. Okay, yeah. perfect. So uh, the ceremony occurs just after the collect in, in the mass, and this was the vigil of Pentecost. And uh, the, the bishop reads in Latin a long exhortation to the candidate. He basically says, do you realize what you're about to do? You are, you are going to incur these obligations. You will never be able to enter the married state again. You must, he goes over all these serious obligations. And mm -hmm. then he says, and, and saying, if you are willing to take on these obligations, step forward. And this is when the, these obligations are incurred. So this is the taking of the step, as the seminarians say. And at that point, there is no, no turning back. Uh, again, it's where we get all, so many of our, our sort of colloquial expressions, it's interesting, come from, from the church. Right? That's where we say, like, you've taken a step, the step of no, like, no return uh, comes oh, from this, this, uh, this ceremony. So then after the step has been taken, uh, as is done, again, to see the connection with the diaconate and priestly ordinations, uh, the, the candidate prostrates and the church implores uh, the litany of the saints. And that's your son laying prostrate on right there? Yes, yes. yes. And again, obviously the symbolism of the symbolism of the church. This is the total offering of yourself to the church for life. And uh, and uh, just as the priest prostrates in front of the cross on Good Friday, uh, here the candidate uh, in offering himself prostrates before our Lord in the in the tabernacle. And were, and then, was it only your son being ordained, or were there others as well? So there were some others who were ordained a few weeks ago. Uh, and it, so there's a total of six now that okay. will be ordained deacon. Uh, but yes, we had a great. A great blessing that it was uh, sort of just just our son in this this particular ceremony. Very good. Uh, so then, after the the church has been implored and and our Lord has received this offering, uh, the the same thing is done with the priestly ordination. As you know, the the instruments of the offering are given to the priest, and he takes. Uh, the chalice and the patent from the bishop. Again, as a movement towards that, uh, the bishop brings him forward and he doesn't take away, but he touches uh, the the chalice, the instrument of sacrifice as a sign of showing that the subdeacon is moving again closer and can now purify the chalice after the priest uh, mm -hmm. has consumed the precious, precious blood. And so uh, he places his hands on the chalice as a priest will, as the bishop holds it and commissions him to now touch sacred sacred objects, uh, particularly those that that touch uh, the sacrifice. Then we will will see uh, in just a moment uh, that he is then just like the priestly uh, ordination again, showing these uh, connections. He will then be vested with the vestments of the the subdeacon. Uh, but first, there's a pause, and uh, the bishop stands and implores the gifts of the Holy Ghost. So just like a confirmation, the spirit of wisdom, they called to be called upon the candidates, a very similar prayer, obviously different wording, but calling upon the Holy Ghost to come upon the candidate. Then after that, those prayers are sung, the candidate ascends the steps of the altar uh, to the bishop, and the bishop begins vesting him. You'll see this, the candidate uh, is vested in the priestly uh, alb and amice, the signs of the priesthood. The amice, though, as you see, is, is pulled outside because the bishop here uh, symbolically pulls it above his head or pulls the amice on his head to indicate he now can wear the amice, as does the, 
uh, the deacon and priest. He then places the maniple, as you see now, on the arm of the subdeacon. The maniple, uh, remember its origins from the temple, the priests would wear a, uh, a cloth on their, their arm to sort of wipe the blood of the sacrifice. Uh, it also represents those in the field who would wipe the sweat from the work. So it represents the work of the priest in offering sacrifice, uh, a vestment which was destroyed, removed in the Novus Ordo, because it is so highly associated with the, the sacrifice of the priest. And again, as now the candidate for the priesthood moves closer to that sacrifice, he wears the maniple during, during mass. Finally, the, the tunicle, the shortened version of the deacon's dalmatic, you see a deacon to the right of Bishop Fillet, and the priest's chasuble is placed over the, the subdeacon. And now he's fully vested for, uh, for, for mass. He then touches the book of the epistles, uh, because again, the subdeacon, if you've seen a solemn mass, proclaims uh, the epistle at uh, the, the priest can actually sit down and not double the text. He doesn't have to read the epistle because he, uh, the, the subdeacon has the authority to read it at, at mass to complete the mass. And so he touches the book that he will be able to pro proclaim. So there are the, the major highlights of the, the ceremony. Obviously there's some much, much longer uh, prayers. Now the uh, subdeacon is not yet able to preach the sermon, correct? No, that, the, de the deacon uh, has yeah. the authority to, uh, among other things, to preach, preach the sermon. So then immediately we return to the mass and one of the newly ordained uh, subdeacons uh, then reads the epistle of the mass for sort of the first time performing uh, his now, his now, um, office in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, as typical, the epistle is proclaimed on the epistle side of the sanctuary. And as I've talked about before, we all sit for the epistle because the subdeacon in many ways represents the old law, the um, the, the Old Testament, the Jewish law, and the Jews didn't rise up to follow Christ. So we sit to represent that, whereas we stand for the, the gospel. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and also the subdeacon, as you'll recall, places over his eyes the, the humeral veil, the veil of the, uh, that hides the, the patent during the consecration, which represents the veil that the Jews placed over their eyes uh, and uh, in their refusal to accept, to accept Christ. So uh, again, we have that three-step to the priesthood, the subdeacon, the old law, the deacon, the proclamation of the gospel, and then the culmination of them in, in the priesthood sort of played out in, in those those roles. Uh, then uh, that really, the, then we return to the, the, the rest of the uh, mass for the day. There is another brief uh, ceremony where the candle that the, um, uh, the candidate, as you see, holds throughout the ceremony is uh, returned to the bishop and placed uh, during the offertory. Again, is that sign of, of offering. So it really was a beautiful day to see, see these ceremonies uh, performed. Uh, I'll just show you a couple of quick brief pictures. So these are all of my sons, uh, obviously my oldest son, and then the son in the middle of the other three is also in the seminary. He's finishing his first year you're there. Mm -hmm. And they are all, as you know from my writing in the paper, they've all graduates of uh, Notre Dame de la Salette Boys Academy. And with them is uh, the founding headmaster, uh, Father Michael McMahon, who spoke at our conference a couple of years ago. So he and made he really didn't, isn't he the one who inspired sort of your son's vocation? Uh, certainly in many ways. He was his headmaster uh, um, 
for his whole time there. Uh, and then the time of the older two, our youngest son is still there and uh, father's now retired and gone off, well retired, gone off to be the prior in Chicago. Uh, but uh, yes, he certainly had played a very informative role in, uh, in their, their formation. Uh, and he made the trip out to see as he does uh, almost half of the uh, graduates of the academy attend the, go to the, either the seminary or monastery. So he came out to see uh, another one of the grad of his graduates uh, to take that take that step. So there they they uh, they are afterwards. Um, and then I'll just show you one quickly, then I'll wrap up the story. And it's nice to have a joyful story to share for a change. That's right. <laughs> as, uh, exactly. Sometimes right. we uh, we don't have. Uh, and we don't, we won't have that uh, many joyful stories to tell <laughs> after this one. But Today I'll we're starting with the good news. And with we'll the good news, the, yes. <laughs> the uh, with with the rigid seminarians. Uh, yes. Yes. And uh, and then again, yes, our our whole family there, uh, with the joy really of the day. Uh, it it is much like again, none of our children have married yet, but it reminded me of what what it must feel like as a parent to have you know one of your children married in, in a certain sense. He's now definitively moved in his. Uh, to his vocation and taken on these definitive uh, roles. Yes. So he will be, God willing, if you know, God willing, ordained deacon uh, in two weeks' time, two weeks from today, and then uh, again, God willing, priestly ordination uh, the next year with a class of maybe about six or seven, it looks like at this point. So that was, uh, that was how I spent our, our weekend uh, last weekend. Again, we were, we were graced to be there. And uh, on Sunday for Pentecost, he was able to serve his first subdeacon of the mass for Bishop Filet. So they threw him in at the deep end, a pontifical mass <laughs> for his, <laughs> for his uh, first time fulfilling his, his, uh, his role. Uh, and uh, we were able to and be able to be there for it. So that uh, happy to share our, a bit of the joy personal joy and a reminder of the importance of these orders. Uh, they and Pope Francis, it, you just so clearly see the distinction, this step away from the lay state that has been totally eliminated where they just wanna make no distinction between clerics, between priests and, and the laity. They're all just sort right. of Protestant ministers is what they're moving towards. And that right. these participations are not reserved for those going to the priesthood, but are you know shared with women in the laity. Right, just kind of like a, uh, like a day job or a, a task yes. that anybody is capable of fulfilling. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Very sad. Well, speaking of uh, rigid seminarians, we have a, a, who some would call, some are calling a very rigid so-called um, priest in yes. Wisconsin who is suffering some persecution at this time. Viewers may be familiar with him. Uh, he really became a he recorded a very powerful video at following the Democratic National Convention, which aired in late late August of last year, called uh, "You Cannot Be Catholic and a Democrat." Period. <laughs> so maybe we can play that clip once uh, Brian gets that pulled up, just to give folks a reminder of what it was that initially got him um, kind of under the. Uh, under investigation, you might say, or under the spot, you know, in the spotlight. Mm. So for the record, dear family. Oh, I think that's the one where he gives his announcement ah. about, uh, so yeah, it should be. Yes, here we go. Sorry, I think that's. Here we go, that's not it. Here's a memo to clueless baptized Catholics out there. 
You cannot be Catholic and be a Democrat, period. Their party platform absolutely is against everything the Catholic Church teaches. So just quit pretending that you're Catholic and vote Democrat. Repent of your support of that party and its platform or face the fires of hell. Yes, Virginia, there is a hell. <laughs> a well-known cleric who seems to be putting out there that oh, hell is an empty place. Sorry, buddy. It's not what Jesus said. So it's a little flavor of the kind of sermons <laughs> that this yes. priest... Uh, um, he gets very, I mean, I, yes. I had a chance to meet him in person last October at the Catholic Identity Conference, and he's a very, very amiable in person, very, um, you know, very sociable. Mm. He just gets very, and he's very passionate about the truth, and it obviously it comes out in his sermons. And, you know, yes. I think it's fair to say that we need more of that in, in our present day, probably not, certainly not less of that. Um, so news broke yes. uh, on on Pentecost Sunday. He gave a sermon, which we'll play a brief clip of. We have an, an audio recording of that available to us, where he basically announced publicly that his bishop, who is uh, Bishop William Callahan, I forget which it's a diocese in Wisconsin. I, I think Lacrosse. Lacrosse. Mistaken. Yeah. Yes. Has asked him in a letter, not commanded him, but asked him to resign. So here is a clip from, from Father's Pentecost Sunday sermon where he uh, pastor, makes that known as publicly. this past Friday, two days ago, because I am divisive and ineffective. In, well, in, in response, my canon lawyer asked for clarification as to the justification and a chance to review what was in my file that suggested I was so divisive and ineffective. And I say all this only because I'm no expert on canon law, but understand only that while we are contesting Bishop's request, and we are, he could, in theory, appoint a parish administrator whilst I remain a pastor without duties. And a brief update since this sermon. Yesterday, uh, Father Altman revealed in an interview with John Henry Weston of LifeSite News that uh, after this sermon, the bishop put out a press release saying he was commencing. So first he asked him to resign, and now he started a canonical process to have him removed oh, as wow. okay. canonically as pastor. And so what that means is that process first, he will be removed temporarily. So they'll send a new priest in and he'll just have to sit doing nothing while that plays out uh, over uh, to have a formal permanent removal as pastor under canon right. law. So again, the bishop asked, and he said, no, thank you. And the bishop said, well, then you didn't understand. This was a totalitarian dictator ask, meaning you must do it. <laughs> wow. So yeah, among other outlets, LifeSite News reported on this uh, this week, Monday, and there's an, an extended quote that I'd like to read that's in that recording uh, where Father Altman says, what really is at play here, dear family, that's how he always refers to his, uh, his parishioners, dear, and he really does, it's very obvious that he considers them his family and that he is their spiritual father. What really is at play here, dear family, is that other shepherds are offended because I simply state the fact that they abandoned their sheep in a time of need. He talks talking about the COVID crisis and the closing down of churches. He goes on, if this alleged virus was allegedly a fraction as dangerous as they said it was, it was all the more reason to keep our churches open and get you the sacraments so that you stayed in a state of grace. 
They put your eternal souls at risk. They despise me for speaking that simple truth, for speaking the truth that Jesus commanded his apostles. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Even though I know the world is going to hate you, I send you to baptize, to forgive the repentant, and to feed my sheep. I do not know how any ordained priest or bishop or cardinal could fail to feed his children. But I do know this. I am, I am not the divisive one. I am not the ineffective one. I am not the one disrespecting my office. They have done a great job being divisive. They have done a great job of being ineffective, and they have done a great job of disrespecting their office all by themselves without any help from me, end quote. So uh, we certainly have to commend Father Altman for taking the stand that he has and preaching the truth, you know, in season and out of season. It's also very worth noting that Father Altman in the last, I'm, I'm not sure when he started saying the traditional mass, but he actually mentioned in his interview earlier this week with Dr. Taylor Marshall that um, a large portion of his parish, maybe even a majority, are, you know, traditional Latin mass uh -huh. attendees. He's been offering the, the traditional mass at his parish for some time now. And something else interesting to note in his interview with uh, Taylor Marshall, as I noted on Twitter, so towards the beginning of their discussion, Father mentioned that he's been reading a book called The Popes Against Modern Errors, which is a collection, I have one, uh, I have a copy myself, a collection of preconciliar papal texts, essentially condemning all the errors that we've been seeing since the council. Um, so it's very significant that Father Altman is saying the traditional mass is, is becoming more and more attached to it and is reading these preconciliar texts, many of which we run on a regular basis in our, our paper every month, the Pope speak. So if he continues on that path, he's definitely uh, headed in the right direction. So we need to yes. definitely keep him in our prayers. And if we're able to, to support his cause, you know, financially, maybe consider giving a donation. And it's interesting, Matt mentioned he's in the Diocese of La Crosse, and I think that's an important point because it really highlights the instability of the uh, post-conciliar church, kind of something that Archbishop uh, Vigano referred to in his, his uh, response to our questions about the difficulty of clerics, because that is the diocese, it was originally the diocese of uh, Card now Cardinal Burke. And right. many people flocked to it. Oh, this is wonderful because Cardinal Burke was very uh, conservative in, in his moral views and was tolerant of the traditional mass. And a lot of people, oh, this is wonderful. This is going to be a great diocese. So now here we are. I forget how long it is since he left La Crosse. He went from La Crosse to St. Louis and then to the Vatican. So it's been right. some time. Yeah. But now all of a sudden that diocese that, again, there was some good being done is punishing you know, this priest and unjustifiably persecuting him for for saying things that Cardinal Burke himself, you know, has said and would say and, and would have supported. So it just shows we are living in a lawless time. We're in a time where, again, law is based on the whim of the dictator. That is what the post-conciliar world, Francis is the epitome of it. And it's how we see that a diocese that had a Cardinal Burke now, you know, has this bishop who is persecuting Father Altman. Now, thankfully, we just as a closing note before we move on, I did want to mention Bishop Joseph Strickland of the Diocese of yes. Tyler, Texas, has come out uh, very outspoken in support of, of Father Altman. He tweeted out on Monday of this week, Father James Altman is in trouble for speaking the truth. 
I originally supported him when he spoke bold truth during the election. I continue to support him for speaking the truth in Jesus Christ. Uh, he inspires many to keep the faith during these dark days. Let us pray for him. So and that's a that very I, significant statement because what yeah. we're seeing for the first time this year, and it's not just with this, is in the past, the gentleman's agreement among the bishops conference here is you don't criticize other U.S. bishops, right? No matter what they're doing, you just don't say anything. And right. this is now, we saw it over the, uh, with, with Biden and the election and even with the COVID vaccine topic, we've seen bishops like a few, but like Strickland, who are basically speaking out against their fellow bishops in the United States. I mean, what his statement is, is a condemnation of what this bishop in uh, Green Bay has done by saying he stands with Father Altman. That means he's against this persecution. Mm -hmm. And that is highly significant change in the way that, again, it's not they're the minority, but the fact right. that they're willing to speak out against other what other bishops are doing is is a significant development. So it would be I don't know canon law well enough to say, but it would be interesting to know if uh, if Father Altman does get removed from his uh, as being pastor in La Crosse. I wonder if he could be incarnated in Bishop uh, Tyler's or Bishop Strickland's diocese of Tyler. It's in, be interesting to see what happens there. Again, it's hard to make any predictions because, again, this is such a lawless time. The whole, the, the whole, like with Archbishop Lefebvre, without any canonical proceedings, they, un, you know, illegally just suspended him out of Venus without any, you know, without any respect for the law. So, right. again, it, it, it's hard to know what will happen because they, they don't really respect the law. They just, like right. every liberal, like every revolutionary, just want to get to the, their end goal. Right. So in closing, just wanted to reiterate, you know, certainly pray for Father Altman. Yes. Uh, and if you're able and, and feel inclined, there is an online um, fundraiser campaign to, you know, to support his uh, temporal needs for uh, legal fees for his canon lawyer, as well as, you know, yes. there's, as Father Altman has explained in video interviews, there's a high likelihood he will basically be evicted from uh, the parish rectory, and, and also apparently his parents live in the rectory with him, so they would also be without wow. living quarters. And again, we remember the words of Archbishop Vigano to us, that when he talked about clergy who moved towards tradition, that we, the laity, here's where we do have a role, and that is to support and welcome them, because he talks about how frightening it is for a priest. I mean, this is the way they operate. They threaten them, you know, temporally, not only with these canonical punishments, but essentially we're going to cut you off. You're going to be poor and you're not going to be able to feed yourself. And again, what's the role of laity to say, we will support you uh, when, you know, when that persecution comes. So do think about yes. that. Yes. But continuing with this theme of uh, this assault on tradition, which again, we're seeing ever, ever more increasing. We saw with the priest's attack on rigid seminarians, uh, the recent report we did on the America Magazine article on how young people should be forbidden to go to the traditional mass. We saw the report a couple months ago where St. Peter's has banned the traditional mass from St. Peter's, except in a basement, uh, I think once a couple times in the morning, has banned private masses. Again, this has been all moving forward and, and culminating. And we had a news report this week of where the next phase may be going. So an Italian uh, news source, uh, which uh, was uh, Massa in Latina, uh, which was translated by Rome correspondent uh, Diane Montagna, 
uh, reported on uh, the meeting that the Pope had with the Italian bishops. And after the journalists had left and they went into more private session, uh, it was reported that what he told the Italian bishops is that there's going to be an imminent reform of some morum pontificum. And he gave an, a hint of how imminent that is. He said that there is a draft document, we don't know from, from whom, but a draft document presumably from one of the congregations, either the CDF probably or CDW, uh, that uh, he has re reviewed three. So if he's at a third draft that he's reviewed, this is something that is, is so it's, far- It's advanced. well beyond the stage of just yes. rumors. Something is clearly yes, happening. Yes, something is happening. And that it would reform some more on pontificum reinterpreted. Uh, and Diane Matania reported shortly after that, that according to Mesa in Latino, uh, they confirmed that their sources for this speech that he gave the bishops include three bishops who were officials in the Roman, uh, uh, who were uh, at the meeting on Monday. So they're physically right. present at the meeting when the Pope said this, plus two high ranking officials in the Roman Curia would be aware right. of it. So we have firsthand and, witnesses corroborating this. And these witnesses said the draft exists and it has been examined. He said he hopes this source, the document is not issued. Now, what do we make of this? Obviously, we don't know for sure what it says. It, it, it is unlikely to be anything good, <laughs> but we don't know what it says uh, until it comes out. Uh, but I'll give you my, my predictions of what it's likely to do. I think what it's likely to do is to pick up on this theme that they used COVID to beat into our heads, that the bishop has the right in his diocese and the obligation to regulate the time and manner of the offering of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, that as the head of the diocese, he's supposed to, for the common good of the diocese, have some regulations of that. And again, this is perfectly normal in the church. So let me give you an example. So if there's a priest who says, oh, I'm only going to offer Sunday Mass at three in the morning. If you want to fulfill your obligation, you got to show up at three. Well, then the bishop should intervene and say, you can't do that, right? That's not right. that's not a way to offer the mass for the faithful to fulfill their obligation. That's putting an impediment in front of them. Right. So his right to regulate is not a right to suppress. It is a yes. right to, for the purpose that the, the law exists, to enact regulations that support that purpose. And that's yes. why, as we've talked about throughout this COVID-19 thing, the bishops have claimed the right to regulate and to ban the public celebration of mass, which they cannot do. That's a misuse of their authority. So authority yes. to regulate the time and manner is not an authority to prohibit it altogether. Right. That As St. Paul says, some, I think in 2 Corinthians somewhere, he talks about that God had given him authority not for tearing down, but for, but building, for building up. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's not for the common good. So what I think this is going to do, in my guess, is it will not, I, I think the people saying it's going to revoke Sorum Montificum, that's not how the Roman Curia works, right? That's not how Francis works, right? Remember, we get the kind of statements in the Synod, then we get the infamous footnote in Morris Letizia, we get the kind of green lighting effect, and then say, oh, I didn't really do anything, right? The, the kind of deniability. So I, again, I think it's highly unlikely he'll just say, ah, Benedict was wrong, we're revoking it. What's more likely is that we're going to now put out guidelines, and that's why I think it may be a motu proprio, it may be something from the CDW or the CDF that says, uh, in Samorum Pontificum must be read and implemented together with the rule that the bishop of the diocese has the right to regulate the liturgy. And so what that will mean is that the bishops can say, we're not going to have any traditional mass in my diocese. It's gone. It's revoked. You need my permission to do it, which as many have predicted will bring us back to the days of the indult when you know, every priest uh, 
you know, had to get permission from the bishop to be able to offer even a private mass. So again, what they'll say is, okay, yes, Benedict said every priest of the Latin rite has a right to say it, but the bishop can regulate that right and can basically, you know, say you've got to come get your green card for me to be able to do it. And, and I'm essentially nullify the right. <laughs> exactly. Make it there in theory, but in practice gone. I think that's what's highly likely to happen. Um, and, and again, it, it, it's, uh, we don't know for sure, but that is most likely what's going to happen. And would you, and, would you, I was just going to say, do you think it's reasonable to surmise that the goal here is to try and stamp out the Latin mass from yes. spreading further at, at the diocesan level? And, he wants to, as Chris yes. Ferrara said in an article we published this week um, on our website, he wants to quarantine it, so to speak, in particular yes. communities. Yes. And again, I think we have the Vatican decree about the St. Peter's are a good model for this because they didn't outright ban the traditional mass, but two things they did. You have, he says all celebrations in the, in the Basilica must be con celebrated. Well, that means you can't have the traditional Latin mass, right? So he doesn't <laughs> prohibit it, but by putting that provision in, and then he says, okay, you can have it, but you have to get special permission. You have to have approval. It said, and you can do it three times in the basement, right? I think that's likely what we're going to get is to ghettoize or quarantine it. And it's important to remember in that sense, that's what I think this will do. And so again, when they say, oh, you've banned the traditional mass. Say, no, 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 I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Um, it, but really effectively, that's what will done. What right. is he doing? He is trying to quarantine it. What is he worried about? We know it from his statement about seminarians. We know it from the Jesuit statement about young people. He's sort of like, okay, if there's a couple kooky people over there that want to have it, fine. But we don't want new young people. We don't want young priests. We don't want seminarians being involved. Precisely the people who are being attracted. Want it. <laughs> exactly. And this is exactly, if we go back 20 years, what Bishop Fillet said when John Paul II said, we want to give recognition to the Society of St. Pius X. We want to solve your legal problems for you. And Bishop Fillet said, okay, we will talk to you about that, but we have three preconditions. Number one, you must issue a document saying every priest of the traditional rite, of the Roman rite, has a right to say the traditional mass. You must free the mass. And many people said, well, if he's going to give you something for you, why do you want that? And Bishop Fillet said, because what we're doing is not just for us. We don't just want some canonical recognition to ease people's consciences so that they don't have to worry about what's your canonical state. So that's just for us personally. We're, our work is for the whole church. And he said, if we just accepted what, what the Pope's offering without freeing the mass, his phrase, this is his phrase, we don't want to be put in a zoo. He, that was his expression. He said, we don't want to be put in a cage in a zoo. Oh, right. by the way, here's our zoo. Here we have the African mass. Oh, over there in that cage, we have our traditionalists, <laughs> and they have their little Latin mass in that cage. And he said, that's not what we want. The right. mass is for the whole church. And we are yes. not willing to even talk to you about getting something for us until, and there were two other preconditions, but the first was free the mass. Yeah. And that's what Benedict the Sixteenth. Again, it was imperfect. It was done imperfectly. There's still this little seed of this because he says, without prejudice, the bishop's right to regulate in his diocese. But again, Benedict made clear what he meant by that, the, the real meaning. Okay, you can you know, say right. you have to have some just normal regulation, but not pro that amounts to a prohibition. But yes. he, he said every priest has a right. And that is now getting walked back so that it will be the zoo. 
or the quarantine, as, as Chris Ferrara says, keep it over there in the corner so that nobody can see it, so seminarians can't learn to say it, and so that it will eventually die out. This is what they want to do from 1970. The original yeah, I, think adult what, I think what terrifies them right now is that the traditional mass is becoming more common, is becoming more mainstream, and that's terrifying to the, the aging modernists like James Martin and Thomas yes. Reese and et cetera, et cetera. Yes, and we know why are they doing this now? COVID shows us this. Father Altman, I think, and, and and uh, um, I think John Henry Weston referred to this, that there's been a, a dramatic increase of numbers of just regular Dawson priests who use the COVID period, right? Because they basically had nothing to do when their bishop shut them down publicly. Right. There are many of them, they report, that spent the time learning the traditional mass. And if they were just saying a mass on their own, they started saying the traditional mass. So I think mm -hmm. the Vatican has seen a huge increase in these sort of younger priests during COVID. Like, okay, well, I'm just going to start saying this then, if I, right? And they don't want to stop that. They want to stop that. Right. and say it's just quarantined over here for the Lefebvreists. Yes. That's what the report said. The Pope said, again, he said, oh, and it's probably going to say something like maybe even the Society of St. Pius X, oh, they can have it. They're priests or or priests whose statutes are dedicated to it. They can have it as long as they're quarantined over there. But what we don't want is your regular priest down the church, down the street saying this. We, we're afraid of that and we are going to quarantine it. That reminds me of a quote I wanted to share with viewers from uh, Pope Francis's uh, Pentecost sermon contains a very telling remark. It could be could have been in anticipation of what happened the next day with the uh, Italian bishops conference and all of this news about Samorum Pontificum. He said during his sermon today, if we listen to the spirit, we will not be concerned with conservatives or progressives, traditionalists or innovators, right or left. When those become our criteria, Francis says, then the church has forgotten the spirit. So apparently the spirit has no problem, according to him, with progressives or innovators, which and we again, obviously know is wrong. This is this false dichotomy they set up against traditionalists and modernist liberals, as if it's sort of they're both bad, rather right. than traditionalism is the church. And, right. you know, that's, that's is where we're supposed and to so be. And so here's what he goes on to say. He says, the paraclete impels us to unity, to concord, yeah. To the harmony of diversity, whatever that means. <laughs> I mean, that basically means yes. like Anglican communion. Yes. Um, all the cards, believe whatever you want. Anything except the mass of all ages is yes. what that means. Yes. Yes. So, Speaking of which, our final report from Rome. Yes. So the, the our final report, well, I just want to mention okay. as a bridge between the two stories, another major news item that happened this week in connection with the whole Samorum oh, yes. Pontificum situation. The Congregation for Divine Worship has a new prefect, and he is certainly no friend of tradition, no friend of the traditional Latin mass, and he could very well play a role in whatever is, is going to transpire re regarding Samorum Pontificum. So as was reported by the Vatican um, yesterday, just yesterday, and LifeSite reported on it, uh, Pope Francis appoints UK bishop known for criticizing traditional liturgy as head of the Congregation for Divine Worship. This is Archbishop, surely soon to be Cardinal, Arthur Roach, the new prefect for the Congregation for Divine Worship. 
And, and again, he has a long list that are in this article yes. of outright hatred for the truth. I mean, just radical statements, radically yes. opposed. Uh, and again, this may be another sign of what may happen. What I think he may also do is remove the authority of the former Ecclesia Day Commission that's a department of this uh, Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, basically say they have no jurisdiction anymore and move supervision of the traditional mass over to the CDW. I have a feeling that may also be part of this. Right. Yes. So before we move on, I also want to recommend, highly recommend folks read this article by Chris Ferrara that I posted yesterday on our website, but it was originally published in March of 2019, a couple months after Francis announced the suppression of the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei. And he really provides some very prescient uh, insights into what's going on. So I gave it a new headline to kind of... Um, tie it together with what's going on this in this week's news. How important was PCED for protecting wider access to the traditional mass? Because even in, in early 2019, Chris could see that getting rid of that commission was not, it, it was a big deal. His original subtitle was, you know, asking a question, no big deal or prelude to total abrogation of Samorum Pontificum. And we're starting to see now uh, that that very well could yes. be the case. So I highly yes. recommend reading that uh, for further insights into that. Yes. All right. So our final story for today uh, is on the Synod on Synodality. It's, it's yes. uh, ridiculous to even think about that, but it is what it is. <laughs> so the Vatican announced um, earlier this week, as Brian has displayed on the screen, the 16th Ordinary General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops. And as we've discussed before, the Synod of Bishops was created basically out of thin air by Pope Paul VI in 19, I think it was 1965, uh, shortly after the close of the council, maybe in, well, it might have been 66 or 67, I can't recall offhand. Um, but basically, for an ongoing open discussion, sort of like a continuation of the council, you might say, where they just talk about various subjects uh, for the universal church. And the topic for the upcoming one is called For a Synodal Church, Communion, Participation, and Mission. And here's a little bit from the official Vatican announcement. Pope Francis, on April 24th, approved a new synodal program uh, titled For a Synodal Church, Communion, Participation, and Mission, and was hoped uh, to commence in the month, it was hoped to be commenced in the month of October 2022. But it says the General Secretariat for the Synod of Bishops has proposed new a new method for the journey toward the synod. So now we're going to have like many synods at the diocesan level in preparation for the universal synod, essentially. Um, so the, it's going to have an opening of the Synod in October of this year. It will take place in the Vatican and in every diocese. Um, so the, the, here's the diocesan phase. The Vatican says will last from October of this year, 2021, through April 2022. And it says the objective of this phase is to consult the people of God so that the synodal process is carried out through listening to all of the baptized who are the subject of the census fidei, infallible in credendo, meaning infallible in belief. 
So here's another example of them using something that is legitimate. That, and we've, uh, Professor Roberto De Mattei wrote about this in the book I interviewed him about called Apologia for Tradition. There is such a thing as the census fidei as well as the census fidelium. But that doesn't mean that you consult the people of God like a democratic poll or something, and that somehow right. results in the truth. That's yeah. not how this works. He makes clear it's not a source of tradition in terms of a source of where we learn tradition from. Right. It is just evidence by what people have believed of what tradition has passed on. So it's, yes. it's again, he's very clear. It is not a source of magisterium, as no, is a papal instinct. It's papal like a supernatural instinct that right. you resist novelty. Yes. It's not... It's not a source of novelty, right. <laughs> it's, right. which exactly. is essentially what they're trying to make it. I mean, yes. to me, this sounds like, okay, we're going to take a, a straw poll of everybody in the diocese and see what they think is important and what belongs to the faith. Well, that's going to be a disaster. <laughs> well, and Francis has made clear what his model is for these diocesan synods is what's been going on in Germany that we've reported on. Uh, that synodal path that they've been on, path to... Right. Uh, a certain place that Father Altman referred to that does really exist, Virginia. Yes. Uh, and, and again, because we know from the reports that we talked about earlier, when he met with the Italian bishops, in addition to what he said about Samorum Pontificum, he took them to task. I forget what the uh, pay liturgique has kind of a French expression. Oh, I think it, it was yeah. wash their yeah, heads. He washed their heads, which is kind yes. of a, a colloquium, <laughs> yelling at them essentially for not following the German example, for saying you're not synodal enough here. So it's really clear what he wants to do. He wants to, rather than stopping what's going on in Germany, he wants a whole year of every diocese doing right. this kind of crazy thing that's been going on in Germany as a preparation. So that's the, the diocesan phase in which uh, the, the statement says each bishop will appoint a diocesan contact person yes. and eventually a team for the synodal <laughs> consultation. <laughs> so it'll probably be a lot of sisters without habits, I would imagine, who are going to be in these positions, as, as is the case at the, the Synod yes. of Bishops itself in Rome now. So you got the diocesan phase from October 2021 to April 2022. The next phase, so there'll be a few months of a break in between. Next, you have the continental phase from September 2022 to March 2023. And he says, or the statement says, the purpose of this phase is to promote dialogue, excuse me, at the continental level about the text of the first instrumentum laboris or working document which will be produced by that point, I assume, and deepen discernment within the specific cultural context of each continent. So that's, a, that's another significant admission, I think, that it's going to vary, you know, the culture is going to dictate what goes on in each area. And then finally, you have the universal church phase, which will be October 2023 and will take place uh, in Rome, as it usually does. Um, yeah, so it says celebration of the Synod of Bishops will take place in Rome according to the norms established in the Apostolic Constitution, Episcopalis Communio, which is another really bad document that Chris Ferrara yes, has, yes. has analyzed thoroughly for us in the paper. So where is all of this ultimately leading or what is this really about? I think as Brian mentioned, it's certainly connected integrally to the German synodal path. And one of the things that the, this German synodal path or synodal way is calling for is literally Vatican III. Uh -huh. And they, that they actually say in their most recent working document, which was released back in early February, I'm going to read a quote from, from this provided by LifeSite News. 
So LifeSite reported at the time, other ways to increase participation in the church's life include the building up of synodal structures. While this applies even to the local parish level, on the level of the universal church, this working document demanded, quote, a synodal forum, an assembly of the universal church, a new council, meaning Vatican III. But they mean new in a different sense. They mean new in terms of an, another one, but they also mean a new type of council, which oh, would, again, yeah, yeah. invalidate. What they want is a council where it's not just, as has always been since the Council of Jerusalem, the bishops of the church coming together, right. but they're going to want everybody, right? Everybody, right. which will invalidate. I mean, it will not be a valid council in terms of the protection of the Holy Ghost. Right, and that, the quote goes on. It says, a new council in which believers within and outside of ordained ministry yeah. deliberate and decide... Yes. Together on questions of theology and pastoral care, that as well as on the constitution and structure of the church. Yes. I mean, those are things that are not up for debate. No. And it's never happened, as Brian said, that lay people or even non-prelates, like non-bishops, non-episcopal uh, clergy, have participated in that way, in a deliberative way, in a council. That's never happened in church history. Yes. So... We're on a, uh, so the German synodal path is is no doubt about it. It is, it is a heretical and schismatic path. There's no no other way to say it. Another article I wanted to mention in connection with this as to where this idea of a synodal church came from, Edward Penton published um, last week, Friday, an excellent article called Permanent Synodal Church, A Progressive Jesuit Cardinal's Dream Come True. And he's referring, of course to Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini, the auspicious head of the St. Gallen Mafia. Um, and he, as Edward says in his report, um, see if I get the quote here. Let's see here. So let's see, if for Cardinal Martini, the key issues regarding all of this synodality and comprised, quote, the shortage of ordained ministers, the role of women in society and in the church, the discipline of marriage, the Catholic vision of sexuality. In other words, everything that we're seeing being discussed in the yes. German synodal way, the German yes. synodal path, penitential practice, relations with the sister churches of orthodoxy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even our, our friend and colleague, uh, John Venari, God rest his soul, wrote about this in Catholic Family News. We have an article published on our website that uh, was he did in 2013 called the Martini Pope. So I'll include a link to that so folks can read it. But basically everything that Cardinal Martini and the St. Gallen Mafia were discussing and, and working towards is coming to fruition under Francis and the synodal way, which Francis, by the way, has said uh, he claimed in, in November of 2019 during a, an address to the International Theological Commission, quote, as you know, this theme is very close to my heart. Synodality is a style. It is walking together. And it is what the Lord expects of the church in the third millennium. Can you, can you imagine claiming that, that the Lord expects heresy and schism of the church in the third millennium? That's unbelievable. Absolutely. And coming to a diocese near you. <laughs> yeah, exactly yes. right. Yes. Well, we'll keep our eye on this story over the next couple of years. Obviously, there'll be much, much to say. But 
Well, thank you for watching and listening to our stories today. If you've enjoyed our free content, please consider uh, forwarding it. Please like and subscribe to our channels on YouTube, Rumble, or your favorite podcast stream. Uh, particularly Rumble, please. Uh, that's the uh, safest platform right now as we may get deplatformed on YouTube. Uh, so please subscribe there so you don't miss anything. And if you enjoy all of our free content, including the articles we post on our website, remember those articles are a small fraction of what we publish in the newspaper each month. And so consider a subscription to our newspaper. You can either call our office instructions on the web, our website to get a paper subscription delivered to your door, or you can subscribe online to an e-edition, electronic edition, which you can access within minutes of uh, subscribing. Yes. So please consider, uh, consider doing that. And then yes. we'll end, as we always do, with, uh, with a prayer for, for really, I think, our, the whole church and for God to, and Our Lady to protect those priests, those who are defending tradition and are, who will be, continue to be persecuted as a result. Yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal Father, I offer thee the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the instruments of his holy passion, that thou mayest put division in the camp of thy enemies. For as thy beloved Son hath said, a kingdom divided against itself shall fall. Amen. Our Lady Amen. of Fatima. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for your attention, and we look forward to seeing you uh, next week, the day after Corpus Christi, uh, next Friday. Yes, God bless you. Thank you.